2: were not, and no medications had been changed, nothing had been changed, but they would say that they would see their deceased loved ones and they were calm. And it seems like they do, that they, you know, have one foot here and one foot somewhere else. And it's amazing to be able to sit with patients then. And you can feel it, you know, not something that you can really tangibly say, but I think most hospice nurses would say that you can feel whenever they're in between worlds.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between. Today is such an honor for me to have Hadley Vlahos on the show. If you have not been on Instagram, then you probably don't know her. But if you've been on Instagram, you for sure know Hadley. Hadley is a registered nurse. She has incredible... um, stories that she shares and TikToks that she does all about hospice care and helps you get very, very comfortable with the idea of death and dying. And her newest book, The In-Between, Unforgettable Encounters During Life's Final Moments is a New York Times bestseller. It is incredible. It is such a great, meaningful, thoughtful, read that makes you feel inspired to live a more meaningful connected life so welcome nurse hadley thank you so much for having me i am so excited to talk to you first of all let's start before we dive into the contents of the book let's start with how as a young single mom you got into hospice care
2: yeah absolutely so i originally had gone to college university to be a writer and then at 19, I got pregnant unexpectedly and said, okay, well, that's not going to cut it to support the two of us. So I started looking at careers that within a reasonable time frame, I could provide for both of us. And nursing definitely fit that bill. You know, in two years, I was able to have a pretty good job that definitely had stable hours. And so I went in to nursing school, became a nurse, and then out of school, I couldn't really find my place as a nurse. I tried doing the hospital where I did like float pool where you go to like the ER, labor and delivery, just everywhere. And then from there, I did a few months in immediate care. Then I did a nursing home. And then the nursing home is where I saw hospice for the first time. And I saw how meaningful it was. And I got to see these nurses come in and sit with patients one-on-one when every other job I'd had as a nurse, you're just running around like a chicken with your head cut off, just trying to do tasks, but they really got to know their patients. And I said, that is what, that's what I wanna be doing. And Mm -hmm. it's been six years now.
1: So one of the things that I think comes through so um, strongly in the book is, and I think perhaps maybe not in hospice, but certainly in other sort of medical care, what seems to have gotten lost is the connection between patient and whoever's caring for them. And it seems like that's something that you are particularly well-skilled at is making that connection, even with some of the most difficult patients that don't want hospice, that aren't interested, that maybe don't know anything about it. How much do you attribute your success to that deep care and connection and genuine authenticity that you have for the people that you care for in their dying days?
2: I think it's a lot of it, just being able to, but I think every single person has it in them to be able to do it. I don't necessarily think it's something just unique about me that I was born with. I think we all have the ability to really find those little moments, you know, especially like in my day-to-day life. If someone's not really talking to me, being in their home gives me the opportunity to look Mm -hmm. around and be like, oh, I see your wedding picture or what was that? It gives you so many moments to say, tell me about yourself. And I think really any of us can do that.
1: And you really seem to be able to meet your patients where they are. So where in the process do people typically bring in hospice? Where do you recommend people bring that in?
2: I think the earlier the better is always the best. So six months or less by a doctor's standpoint. A doctor says that without any further treatment, you have six months or less. And the closer Mm. you can get to that, the better Because you are able to get to know these people before they get to the stage where things can be a little bit out of control, like with symptom management. And I would much rather get to know someone and their preferences beforehand. Mm. And then whenever things are in, they can get kind of like in crisis mode. I already know what to do. I'm not asking, hey, what what do they want? Would they want me to do this? Would they want me to do that? I can just handle it and know that
1: I'm honoring what they wanted. And does that mean they've given up if they bring in hospice?
2: No, I hate that. That's such a common thing that people think. But no, they actually, studies show that people live longer on hospice with the Mm -hmm. same diagnosis, about 20 days longer. And so in my opinion, it's just taking back your power. You're just able to decide how you want to live your last few days.
1: So in the book, I can't remember if it's you who said this or... You're the doctor who mm-hmm. you call whenever you have a consult about something. Um, as you were struggling and you said, maybe sometimes people or he or she said, maybe sometimes people didn't need more. Maybe sometimes they needed less. Maybe all they needed was a little bit of comfort. What does that mean as you think about people nearing their death, that they don't need more, they need less?
2: I think it means so many things but you know in our culture we just don't really quite we're not quite to the point now where we understand that dying is natural and normal and it is okay to just be at home and comfortable and surrounded by loved ones and to just go through that process you don't necessarily always need to be going to the hospital or doing the next experimental treatment but like you said earlier with the giving up that you know, people attribute that, that they don't love their loved one. If they're not trying everything that they possibly can to keep them here. But in reality, just giving them some comfort at the end can really be one of the kindest things that you can do for your loved one.
1: How did you choose the characters in your book? I mean, you've been doing this work. I don't know when you started the book, let's say two, two and a half years ago, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, how did you choose with so many stories? And it sounds like also you know, you shared everybody who's a hospice worker has these stories as well. It's not just you, which yeah. was just expanded kind of my thinking on these, ish, these topics even more is like you are one person. Yeah. So many people are having the experiences. What you talk about is people seeing dying loved ones, perhaps some premonitions, which we'll get into a little bit more. Um, I'm assuming there were more than just the ones that you've shared. And how did you pick these ones?
2: Yeah, that was really difficult for me. So there were definitely some, of course, that I was very, very close to, like Carl, um, that, of course, they had to be in it. They were so close to me. But there's others where I had to really look at. I did the first two years of my career so that the reader could learn with me, learn hospice with me, and really start to understand how it is to walk into that first death as a hospice nurse and what all your thoughts and feelings are. And I wanted to do the first year so you could come with me as I learned to be more confident in my role. And so as I looked at those two years, I looked at point A, which is just very new nurse, pretty young, and very insecure in my role, um, in many ways, to being more confident in my role and empowered. And I said, who were those patients that helped me get? from point A to point B. And it made it much more clear that there were definitely some people who helped me believe in an afterlife that helped me feel more confident in my role, who helped me personally, like Elizabeth, with telling me to eat the cake um, and overcoming those obstacles just to be a better person, which made me a better nurse.
1: And what did you, how do you, or it seemed like early on, you took more of the work home. Yes. What does that look like now? I mean, I so resonated with that as a therapist because I feel like I'm still, I've been doing working clinically with people for over 20 years or almost 20 years, I think. Um, And I'm like still trying to undo some of the early work that I feel like I took home with me that's still living inside of me in some way. So how have you, and, and the work you do is so you know, you're in there maybe for a short period of time, but it is probably other than someone's birth, the most, it can be the most, you know, pivotal time in their lives. Um, the most traumatizing time yeah. in their life and the life of the people around them. What do you do to separate from that and, and be compassionate and loving and caring and not take it home with? You?
2: You know, it's so difficult. I really struggled with that. And sometimes I do still have days where I do struggle with it. Like when we go on vacation and I'm like, oh, gosh, I hope they don't die while I'm gone. I'm going to feel horrible about that. And I think for a long time I also kind of beat myself up about it and would say, like, you have to stop this. You have to disconnect. And learning through therapy that it is okay to be a human and to have these experiences and just learning that you can take the good with the bad. And as long as there's more good than bad, it's okay to to just have bad days. But you don't also need to add another layer by beating yourself up
1: mm-hmm. over getting
2: connected and having mm-hmm. a bad day. And so there are days that I do get closer to people and I do cry about it. But I also think over the years, I used to really be on call 24-7. If someone needed me that were my patient, I would be on call for them 24-7. And I burned myself out doing that. And so now I've had to learn that I can trust my team and I can trust, especially the on call team, that they are very competent nurses, which they are, and they will care for them the way I would care for them. And whenever I stay up 24 hours, I can't, I can't be the nurse that they need. It, it is much better for the patient for
1: them to have a well-rested nurse. Mm-hmm. So explain to me, this was interesting to me too. When you bring in hospice, there, there are a lot of different tentacles here. Um, who are all the people that are involved in the care of a hospice patient?
2: Yeah, it is. It is a lot. I'm, and I'm just one person of that. So Of course, you have your primary caregiver. So, for everyone that can look different, sometimes it's a spouse if they're still alive, or it can be a kid or even a grandkid. Um, And so, you're at home and you're going to have that primary caregiver with you most of the time. And then we're going to come in. So, the doctor is on call 24 7, but they're usually not actually seeing the patient, which is very different than any other type of healthcare. But we can call them at any time. Um, The nurse is going to come see you a few times a
1: week and is this the hospice doctor or is this yes okay okay so once you move into hospice care you have a physician that just oversees your hospice care
2: yes and people can choose to keep their own doctor and we'll call them first but of course they don't have the expectations to be on call 24 7 right so we have both in that case so we'll always try to call your doctor first if you want them but we have to have our doctor in case they're not answering the phone at 3 a.m. because our doctor is required to. Gotcha.
1: So okay.
2: we have that. And then the you'll get a nurse case manager is what they're called, which is what I am in the book. And they are responsible for making sure that everything goes smoothly and that everyone is coming and that if you have needs, that they are met. And then we have chaplains who come visit you at the home if you want them. Not everyone does, but they can help you no matter if you have religious beliefs or no religious beliefs. We have social workers that can help with any kind of things, such as going into a nursing home or any kind of financial assistance that you might need. And then aides, who are also wonderful, they will come help give baths or change your clothes, and they'll come a couple of times a week. And we all just kind of work together and make sure the patient's taken care of. But your nurse case manager is in, in charge of everyone, not like a manager, but they manage you. Gotcha. And then
1: is there some does the social worker do any sort of therapeutic work or just more case management work?
2: I would say it's more case management. They okay. will fill in if the chat, if they refuse a chaplain. I've noticed that the social worker will kind of fill into that role. But the best outcomes I see is whenever people, regardless of their religious beliefs, they allow the chaplain to be there. Okay. Because they really they can be like a friend. We have wonderful chaplains.
1: Yeah, I loved the chaplain in the book. He he really seemed like he was a good friend to you as well and a really big support. Yeah, he is. So let's move into the fun part, the spiritual part of this book, which it is. I mean, it's a very spiritual book. How, starting with your pregnancy and what Mm -hmm. happened when you went to church with your mom unwillingly, yeah. Can you take us through some of the spiritual experiences that you had throughout your life and how, how did that differ from how you were raised and how has that shifted how you view life and death? I know I just, yeah, a lot at you. So.
2: Absolutely. So whenever I was 19 and pregnant, I intended on having an abortion and my mom had started going to this Catholic church I had never been to before after her divorce and Right after the morning after I had found out I was pregnant at 19 and was going to get an abortion, she was going to church and I just didn't want to be alone. And I felt like I could go and nothing was going to sway my decision. So I went and the um, priest got up there and basically said, I need to talk to someone in here today. I'm being moved to tell someone that I understand that you want this picture perfect life or what what a picture perfect life looks like to you, Um, which is getting married, doing everything the traditional way, the white picket fence. And he said, that's not what God needs you for. And you, ne- you need to have this baby. This is this is the life that's intended for you. And I was like, wow, that that's just crazy. And I didn't, you know, I think a lot of people would think like, oh, all of a sudden I changed my mind. And that's not really what happened. And I think that's kind of how it is for most people. I just was, it put doubts in my mind as to whether or not I should do it. And you know, every day I would go to call and I'd just be like, maybe, maybe things will be okay. If I have this baby, maybe, maybe it will be okay.
1: I hope you're enjoying the podcast and videos so far. Please consider supporting life, death, and the space between on my Patreon page at Dr. Amy Robbins. You can donate any amount you feel comfortable with. Also, we are actively looking for sponsors. So if you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring the show, please reach out at Dr. Amy robbins.com. I truly appreciate any support you can give. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight
2: loss. And, you know, now looking back so many years later, I'm like, of course, this is the the life intended for me. I couldn't imagine having any other life. I totally get it. Um, But at the time, that was difficult. And I had lost my face uh, growing up after losing um, a friend at 15 and tragically, in front of us, he was playing football at high school, and two players hit him—just one in a million chance—and he died. And I lost my faith after that. And then, um, working in the ER, just seeing the true horrors of the world, um, I had a ER nurse tell me, "You know, we don't—no no one in here believes that. We we don't want to. We don't believe in someone who." you know, we don't believe in a God who allows things like this to happen. And for me, it was really like, who, who do you believe? Like, who am I supposed to believe? Who's right? And so going into hospice work, I really had that challenge, that black and white, like there either is a God or there is an afterlife or there's not. And it's very black and white. And I really had that challenge because all of my patients, regardless of their religious beliefs, we're having the same exact experience, which is that their deceased loved ones come to get them and they feel at peace with it before they go. And I was seeing it over and over and over again. And then every coworker I was talking to, these people that I respect and these doctors that I respect um, as clinicians were also saying, yes, I, we see this all the time. This is totally normal for people's deceased loved ones to come get them. And then these patients that I had grown to love and trust were telling me that their loved ones were coming to get them. And regardless if they were scared of death beforehand, they all of a sudden were not, whenever their loved ones and no medications had been changed, nothing had been changed. But it, they would say that they would see their deceased loved ones and they were calm and at peace. And so for me now, that's one of the reasons I call my book The In Between because. I've switched away from that black and white thinking of either I have to be uber religious, you know, in church three days a week, or I'm an atheist, which is basically the two extremes I was at. Now I'm just at the in-between. I 100% believe in an afterlife. I believe that our loved ones come get us at the end and that we're at peace. But I don't necessarily have to be extreme one way or the other.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense for um, when, one, why do you think, I guess, that science hasn't embraced this in this way when, I mean, you're talking about not just you again, but every single one of your colleagues, and let's just multiply that out, right? Like not just your colleagues, anyone in hospice who has seen this. Is there a medical explanation for it? Because I've heard some people say that it's the release of DMT that happens in the end that allows for that hallucination, it's been called. Um, But how Mm -hmm. how do you understand it and explain it?
2: So I'm very interested. I hope that they do research on it. I really do. But what a lot of people don't know is hospice is still pretty new. It only came to the U.S., Mm -hmm. I believe, in the 90s, like 1990s. Really? So it's still pretty, yeah, it's still pretty new. So um, we're still really learning a lot from it, you know, before it was just all in the hospital. So they did near-death experiment studies, which to me show they back up what we see in hospice. And then, you know, I've looked at the DMT studies, and to me, I thought it was a very interesting hypothesis, Mm -hmm. but what these people were seeing doesn't match what we see. So they they would take DMT and they would have, um, they would see rainbows or they would see a bright light. I've never had anyone see a bright light. And they would say that they would go to a different planet and they would talk to God. And I've never had anyone say any of these things. Mm. And so to me, it almost felt like maybe they were trying to say what they would think that people say, but it actually is not what people say that they see at the end. They're just seeing their deceased loved ones. And no one said that in that study. So to me, I was like, okay, well, DMT does that. I don't discount that DMT makes you have hallucinations. But I don't necessarily think that that's what's happening in hospice
1: situations. Got it. Have you ever had a shared death experience with patients? I have not. Okay. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet.
2: Not yet. I, I know some coworkers have.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then can you talk a little bit? Cause I think that this, even if you want to discount the loved ones coming for you as a chemical reaction for anybody who's listening, who's like, I don't believe yeah. it. I don't buy it. Okay. I'm going to give you something more here to think about. You had two experiences and I'm sure that there were more of your patient's Seemingly having a premonition about something that happened after they died, can mm-hmm. you describe those experiences and how you understand each of those? You can yeah, just pick uh, one if it feels like too much to talk about, too.
2: Sure. Yeah. So the more um, the, the the more profound one in my experience was a patient that I had with Alzheimer's. Name's Edith. Um, who I thought was just having um, like sundowning with Alzheimer's. She was just having anxiety and I was called over to the home and she thought that her bed was on fire. And so I'm trying to give her medications that we would normally give and it just was not touching it. And I was starting to panic. Um, The patient was panicking. She said there was a fire. She was freaking out and crying. Husband was just feeling very overwhelmed with caregiving and I Actually, after I had called the doctor three times, we had given her medications, and we were really maxing her out. Um, I called one of the hospice nurses, who's been a hospice nurse for a very long time, and said, "What do I do?" And she said, "You, well, what, what's going on?" I said, she, "She thinks her bed is on fire." She said, "We'll move her bed."
1: <laughs> like it's the most obvious <laughs> thing in the world. <laughs> right, right. Of course, just just pick up a big bed and move it to another yeah. room.
2: <laughs> and um, I was like, "Okay." So I move the bed, which was not as hard as I thought it would be. You know how those this fake wood beds are looking more real than <laughs> than I thought they would. It wasn't as difficult as you would think it would be. So I moved it to an empty room that they had that they didn't use down the hall. And um, that was that. She was fine. And I was like, okay, well, that worked. So which for one thing did teach me that sometimes you don't need to always just give medications, which is really what I thought at the beginning. Sometimes it can be something simple. It's just like, Oh, there's a fire on your bed. Let's let's move it away. Mm-hmm. And that seems so simple whenever you think about it. Um, so we did that, and she was she was fine. She went on. She she ended up dying a couple of months later, just very naturally as expected. And then a few months after that, so probably at least six months after the fire incident had happened, I went to her celebration of life, and her husband came up to me and said. Hey, I have to let you know that there was, there, there was a fire in that bedroom and I, it was in the middle of the night and Mm i believe I'm only alive because I never moved the bed back. You moved it to the other room and that just became my bedroom. And I just was like, I mean, how, there's some things that you think maybe that's a coincidence, but to me, I've never been able to understand how that could be a coincidence.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and it, you, you, you can read the book if you want to know about the other one because there is another situation like that. But it really does get you thinking in terms of like, what does that mean about time and how we view time and how we understand time and what we can see and sense that, ex, that, that is not constrained by the linear time in which we think it. And how, as you move towards death, what does that open up for someone that allows them to access maybe greater consciousness in that way.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I completely agree. And it seems like they do, that they, you know, have one foot here and one foot somewhere else. And it's amazing to be able to sit with patients then. And you can feel it, you know, not something that you can really tangibly say, but I think most hospice nurses would say that you can feel whenever they're in between worlds,
1: and how how early does that start in the dying process that people I would say go in? Normally, like a week before. Okay, where it's more. Of course, per- there are pronounced.
2: people. Yeah, I'd say there are people who are like up to a month, but and then some people who it's like just
1: a day before. But mm. I'd say the norm would be about a week. So, as if someone starts seeing loved ones and things like that, usually that's. You're very, you're getting very close.
2: Yes. And then normally we'll see people, they will sleep more and more. It's very gradual. A lot of people think it's not, but for the majority of people, not everyone, but for the majority of people, it's very gradual. They'll just be awake only a few hours a day. And usually when they're awake for about five or six hours a a day, that's when they'll start to see the deceased loved ones. Mm. So they'll tell us when they're awake that they are. And then sometimes I'm not seeing them. They're, their family members are just telling me when they're awake, they're seeing their deceased mom or whoever it is. And so we'll start to see that. And then it just, one day you realize, oh, it's been 24 hours and they haven't woken up at all. And you realize that they're in a coma and then they
1: usually die from there. Mm -hmm. Do you also see the terminal lucidity? Yes. So I just interviewed someone on terminal lucidity as well. So, do, does that and the loved ones go go ha- typically go hands in hand? They
2: can, and then sometimes they're a couple of days apart.
1: Okay. Because yeah. the terminal lucidity, in my understanding, is really close. Is also really close to death when people are yes. really close to the actual.
2: Usually death. within that week time frame too, and sometimes people don't. I've seen very pronounced ones like the one who got out in my book, who got out of bed and walked, who was seeing his deceased loved one at the same time. So those did go hand in hand. Um, But sometimes it's, it's not until they die that you're like, Oh, you know what? Like they had been their normal self. And then all of a sudden they wanted to get out of bed for the first time in months and come sit in the living room and talk to people and eat some ice cream. Mm -hmm. And you don't think anything of it. And then you realize that they kind of went downhill quickly, within a week Mm -hmm. after that. And sometimes people don't realize that that is that surge of energy until afterwards.
1: So have you ever received any signs from patients who have
0: died?
2: Yeah, I think I get them all the time, actually, Um, especially if I ask for them. So sometimes I feel like I need them. I was having a really hard time when I was writing the book about Carl, who is one that I was very close to. And his sign in the book was bluebirds. And I just felt like this is such an important story. And am I even the one to tell this story? Am I doing it justice? Am I, would he be proud of me? Would he, he was like a grandfather to me. And I actually had a bluebird come sit, like come sit next to me on the the ledge while I was thinking all of this. And I was like, wow, okay. All right, I guess I'm doing a good job then. Mm-hmm. And then just maybe six months ago, I was really, really missing a patient who always had really good advice for me. And I asked her for a sign. She was very into gardening. And I basically said, like out loud, uh, Can you send me some flowers today? And my last patient of the day, it was, I had not gotten anything all day. And I was like kind of disappointed. And then my last patient of the day, as I was leaving, About to go home, my patient said to her husband, hey, honey, will you please give her one of those flower clippings?
1: So amazing when that happens in that way. And it never shows up for us exactly how we think it will. Yeah. But it does. It shows up. They do. Yeah, absolutely. What about from your mother-in-law?
2: You know, I think we had a daughter about a year after she died, um, almost exactly, actually, and she is, she is basically her. It's the craziest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Um, it, really, she looks just like her and she acts just like her. And I feel like we, we were sent her to be reminded mm. of her. She had a very unique personality where she was very, um, leadership qualities is what you would say instead of bossy, yes. <laughs> but very yes. bossy, but extremely loving um, really goes out of her way to really say how much she loves you.
1: Mm. And our
2: daughter is exactly that way. And I have never met anyone else just like that. And it is, it is incredible. So I believe that we get her every single day through our daughter.
1: What are, other than eating cake, Yeah. what are other regrets of the dying you've heard?
2: I hear a lot about the, the way people spend their time that they okay. really feel like they didn't understand how quickly it would all go by. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the cliche, like hug your babies tight. I do hear that a lot that they just didn't understand how quickly those 18 years would go by mm-hmm. and that they would really give up anything to just get one day to go back. And I love it. Cause I have very young babies and I will remember that all the time, whenever I'm just want to sit there and just sit on my phone or just zone out, I'll say, you know, I'll imagine being like one of my patients and saying, oh, just give me one day to just go back to that and really soak it in. Um, They say that and a lot of caring too much about material things. Mm -hmm. I hear that a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. And really at the time, so when it first, when they first started telling me this, I was like, okay, you don't need any material things at all. And I was like, (laughs) okay, so you just, yeah, like I get it what you're saying. And I understand it better now, after spending enough time, that that's not what they meant. They meant don't go after the very short-term happiness. But Mm -hmm. if, say, you find a beautiful home that you just absolutely love, that you can afford, that you're not going to be working a million overtime hours for, and your family will be comfortable in, that means every single day of your life you're going to be happy to come home. That matters. That is a material thing, but it's also giving you happiness every single day. Mm. So to them, they're like, okay with that. But if it's something like an expensive boat that you're going to use twice a year, they're saying maybe not something like that. Got it. And so I've kind of reframed how I think about that and what's important.
1: Well, and I think it's so important to think like, you know, not all material things are bad. Right. And I think some people would go that route of like, you don't need anything, but, it sounds like your experience of it was if there's something nice that you are really going to enjoy. Yes. Then then treat yourself and enjoy it. Yes. Don't just consume for the purpose of consuming and, and perhaps for the purpose of what others will then look at you as. M- yes, more about exactly. what you like, pay attention really to what it is you want. Yes. That exactly. will enrich and enrich your life in a connected deep way.
2: Yes. And I think it's hard to find that balance. And like you said, at first, I just was like, oh, yeah, I don't need anything. I get what you're saying. But, that, but that's not what they mean. Mm-hmm. They, like you said, just what is really going to make you happy, not necessarily impress other people.
1: So um, something that you said, I asked you before we started, what's, is there anything that people never ask you about on podcast interviews? And you said there was. So I'm going to ask you, how did you come up with the names for the people in the book?
2: So I only had one that I was very specific about, which was Carl, because he has always reminded me of the little guy from Up,
1: that little grumpy old man. Oh, yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. where that one comes he from. He was just in a new short that was so cute. I don't know if Oh, you I haven't saw. seen it. Oh, my gosh. It was in the new movie Elemental, and there oh. was a short with him and this puppy, and it was like, you would love this short. You, I bet you can look it up. I will. It's about a man and his dog and his wife who died. Oh, I'll cry just talking about it. It was so... My friend and I went, we took our boys to see the movie. And we went and the two of us were sobbing at this little short. So I'll look for it too and see if I can send it to you. But...
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Carl. Carl was them. And then otherwise, I would just see what I was drawn to for names. And I always wondered, would someone... Find meaning in these names. Like I just did whatever I was drawn to. And I've always wondered that. And I never had anyone. It's Mm. been now two months. Never had anyone. And then I was just tagged in a post a couple of days ago of someone saying, you know, I pre ordered Hadley's book when my mother in law was sick. And it came in right when she died. And I couldn't open it for a while. And I opened it today, started reading chapter three was sue and she had copd and that is what my mother-in-law had and she said i it's a sign from her and my opinion Mm -hmm. and i was like oh i love that i've Mm -hmm. always wondered if someone would find their loved one in in these names that i chose so that that's how i did i just whatever i was drawn to and i feel like it's for different reasons i'm sure there's more people who haven't told me that they found meaning in it that did
1: Right. Is Babette really Babette? Yes. <laughs> okay. yes. My mother-in-law's name is her real name. Yes. <laughs> I was I was wondering that as I was reading it. I was like, well, she's probably, it's probably hard to disguise that one. Yes, that thing. is her real name. Tell us about the work that you're doing.
2: Yeah, your, absolutely. Your, is it
1: called Hadley's House?
2: Hadley's? Yes. Okay. So I'm opening a nonprofit. I'm currently working on it. Uh, That's really prioritizes caregivers. I don't think that we give enough care to caregivers in our country and I don't think they have enough options, especially at the end of life, whenever they need help, really. Their only Mm. options are to hire paid caregivers, which are very expensive and require a six hour minimum a day. Whereas some people just need a little break. They don't need someone in their house all day or they can put them in a nursing home. And some people are extremely opposed to that. So then we have a program called Respite, which is not bad um, how it is, but the problem is most respite houses, which is, respite is where you can go for up to five days paid by Medicare, um, and the patient goes in there instead of a long-term nursing home Uh type setting. They just get a little break. The problem is, is that they don't allow caregivers to come stay, and most caregivers need more help near the very end when symptoms are harder to control and they're not, patients are not able to help. So the problem is, is that most caregivers are not willing to risk not being there when their loved one dies because most of the time they're going to need it right at the end of life. Mm -hmm. So they will just refuse respite care because they don't want to just send their loved one off somewhere to like a nursing home for five days. So my goal is to make it where caregivers are also welcome to come they get a break too. We're there. We'll have nurses. We'll have aides to take the caregiving load off of you, but you're not just made to sit at your house wondering if you're going to miss the death of your loved one.
1: So, so the concept is the same as respite, but a loved one is allowed in. Yes. Oh, wow. That's so beautiful and amazing.
2: Thank you. You know, I really see the need for it in my work.
1: And is the hope, because right now I'm assuming this is just going to be in Florida where you are.
2: No, we're we're actually outside of New Orleans now. So we're going to do the first one here and then I hope to expand them to where they're everywhere.
1: Wait, were you in, you were in Florida in the book, Yes. Okay. Yes, we've moved recently, yeah. Okay. Um, and, And so they'll hopefully be Hadley's houses all over the country for people. I'm hoping so. Because I also know they have like Zen Hospice Project, but that that is yeah. you go and live in
2: the so facility
1: it, for hospice. Yes,
2: yeah, so that is the difference. But also, uh, Zen Hospice closed. They weren't able to it get didn't. funding. Yeah, as far as I understand, during the pandemic, um, I don't think they were able to sustain it. But Zen Hospice is amazing.
1: Right, which is an amazing, also yes. another amazing way to die. Oh my God, I have so many more questions I didn't get to. Okay, can I ask a couple more? Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, what makes a good death?
2: You know, I, I a couple of years ago, I would have told you exactly what makes a good death to me. And I have come to learn that it is different for every single person. And to me, it would be being at my home, being at peace, being comfortable, g- being given medications. I don't want to be in pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but But it's different for everyone. And I think what is important to take from that is that as caregivers, that we don't put on our loved one, what a good death would look like to us, Mm. we let them decide what that is for them.
1: And how do you see people choosing the time of their death? They do.
2: They do it all the time. And it always amazes me. And when I say people choose their time of death, the first comment I always get is, well, why didn't my dad wait for me or whoever it is? Why didn't they wait for me then if they can choose their time of death? And what I've come to learn is that it goes both ways. There are some people who want people to be there and there are others who want to be alone, whether that be totally alone or they don't want someone there for a certain reason. And as someone who has sat with people as they die, where I've been the only one there, as family members are on the way, I feel like I have an understanding after seeing these family members grieve that they could not have handled watching mm. them die. And I personally believe that the, their loved one was protecting them from having to see that.
1: So in our soul, on some level, we know what our loved ones need. And we give that so. to them in our death. I think so. And that's another in-between.
2: It is, yeah. Right? Even though, you know, people say if they're right before death, if you're in a coma, you shouldn't be able to know that. And there's been instances where I've not even – said anything. I should, but I didn't say like, oh, your loved one is five minutes away. Please hold on. It's not like that. I'm just getting text messages. I'm just sitting there with them. So it's not like they know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they know on some sort of spiritual level, but it's not like if they can hear, I'm telling them.
1: Al, who was your homeless patient, which I didn't even realize, which is amazing that you can get hospice care even if you don't have a home. Um, Are you still in contact with his friend, Gil? Um, Gil died. Um, Yes. Mm. So
2: we also had him on our service.
1: Oh, okay. Now now you're all going to have to read the book because you're going to (laughs) want to know who Gil and Al are. Um, Did you care
2: for him? I did. I decided to not be his case manager, but I did go for a couple of visits to see him. Um, It's it's hard to watch people die of preventable things. Mm -hmm. It is hard to watch people that you know that are young, just like Al, um, and to allow them to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, Because he, he could have been just like Al. It could have been treated. It could have been managed. But our... You know, I believe that our healthcare has a really long ways to go Mm -hmm. in this country, especially Mm -hmm. in caring for our homeless population. And it can be extremely draining to watch, to just sit there helplessly and watch.
1: Yeah. I mean, it it seemed I I envisioned because we have a pretty big I don't know if homeless is the right word. And I apologize if I'm using the wrong word because I feel like the, the terms have shifted maybe. You know, I just
2: watched a video of someone recently because I would have um, also changed who is homeless, who said, please don't say that I'm unhoused. I'm not unhoused. I'm homeless. They said it's a little bit offensive to try to um, minimize what it is because it's serious and I want it to be taken seriously. And that's why I've continued to say homeless. Okay.
1: So another in between
2: perhaps. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure different people feel differently.
1: Um, but I think I was just imagining you, we have like 10 tenement housing, housing tents all around Chicago under the bridge and things like that. And, it, you know, when I get off the highway, I often see people and it just made me think like, is this the conditions in which you are showing up to treat people and what how how amazing that is. One, that that's available. I mean, really, I had no idea that was even available. And, yes. and two, that you would go into like that type of space and help someone in that way and, and just do what you can to help their end of life be good, better. Yeah. I, guess.
2: I, I really enjoy caring for them. And I've definitely found that they have a community and they understand that I'm coming to help them, and even if there are certain people that would harm me, there's more people who would protect, mm-hmm. make sure that that doesn't happen. And I have not felt fearful since taking care of Al mm-hmm. for going in those
1: situations. Is there any other meanings to the in-between for you?
2: I think for me, other than just sitting with patients in, in between as a hospice nurse, what I consider to be this world and the next, I think also the lessons that I have learned being not so set in my ways and my upbringing and just be, being really open to just learning and not being, yeah, like I said, so set in my ways, just learning from others and all being on this journey instead of this destination. We're all just kind mm-hmm. of in between birth, birth and death.
1: Nurse Hadley, thank you so much for this book, for putting this into the world, for your light for all your posts that you do to educate people. If they want to learn more about your work other than the New York times bestseller list, where can (laughs) they find you? And Amazon probably too.
2: Yes. So my book is in all bookstar, all bookstores, and it will be released in the UK if there's any UK listeners on the 17th of this month. So exciting. And then I'm on social media as nurse Hadley.
1: Congratulations on on this and, and for being a writer. Right, which so is what much. you originally set out to be. So I think if that isn't like a full circle moment and shows like you can get wherever it is you wanna go, it just the, the way of getting there might not be the path that you had envisioned, but that doesn't mean to give up on your dreams of it happening. So thank you so much, Nurse Hadley. Thank you. Like what you heard today and wanna hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means?